Hello, waterfowlers. This is the old timer coming to you once again from Memphis, Tennessee, sitting on smack dab on the Mississippi River in downtown Memphis. As most of you well know, the duck season is ended uh, across the country. So I'm going to give you just a postseason wrap up as far as Arkansas was concerned this duck season of 22. It was basically consistently inconsistent with changing weathers throughout December and January, warm, cold, warm and cold. And essentially, Arkansas hunted the same bunch of birds for a majority of the season. Some days they were they moved, usually with the local weather events, which is not unusual, and some days they didn't. That led up to an up-and-down season. I think most would say it was a down season for Arkansas. However, there would be others that say it was a normal season. That seems to be the way it's been going the last few years. And I might add for the state of Mississippi, I think it was probably about the same. I think they were saying basically the same thing as what the people in Arkansas were saying. So we're going to get on with uh, episode 10, which is going to be To Be Southern. And I thought that would be a little change of pace from doing old historical uh, waterfowling stories and just get to be back what is to be Southern. The South is changing drastically over the last few years and actually for a number of years. As more and more people move in, the culture is tending to change. So I thought it'd be nice to just get an idea of what it like used to be like in the olden days. So just a preamble before I actually get into the to be Southern. You know, Southern culture is a subculture of the United States. The combination of its unique history and the fact that many Southerners maintain, and we even nurture an identity separate from the rest of the country which led to it being the most studied and written about region of the United States. It is certainly a unique area. During the 1600s to mid-1800s, the central role of agriculture and slavery during the colonial period in antebellum era economies made society stratified according to land ownership. This landed gentry made culture in the early southern United States different from areas north of the Mason-Dixon line and west of the Appalachians. The upland areas of the south were characterized by yeoman farmers who worked on their small landed property with few or no slaves, and that happened to be my family. While the lower lying elevations and deep south was a society of more plantations worked by African slave labor, what made us unique was southern hospitality, sipping sweet tea or Tennessee whiskey, good home cooking, especially supper, Southern charm and manners, politeness, kindness, and many others. From its many cultural influences, the South developed its own unique customs, dialects, arts, literature, cuisine, dance, and music. So here we go with episode 10, To Be Southern. I yearn for a string of lazy afternoons lollygagging on the front porch of Uncle Ed's and Aunt Cindy's farmhouse near Raymer, Tennessee, while swinging with a glass of sweet tea in my hand with nothing to do but watch the butterflies light on one of her flowers while breathing in the human earthly air. Swinging was only interrupted to toss horseshoes or play Chinese checkers or listen to Uncle Ed as he played harmonica and me playing the juice harp or me and my friends playing mumly peg, tossing horseshoes out in the yard. Oh, how I need to hear the sound of a late summer rain on their tin roof and a sweet chorus of crickets and bullfrogs at sunset, and to feel the cocooning wrap of their feather bed at nighttime. We Southerners were raised to swanee, not swear, but you hardly ever hear that anymore. A swanee you don't. 
And how many of you Yankees know the difference between pitching a hissy fit and a conniption fit? Well, you better know the difference, for a hissy fit is less violent and shorter than a conniption fit, which is longer and where somebody can get hurt. And you need to know what makes a mess for a meal. Well, all Southern boys know what mess means. It means enough of whatever food it is to make a meal a mess of fish or a mess of squirrels, so on and so on. And every Southern boy knows that give me some sugar is not a request for white granular sweet substance that sits in a pretty little bowl in the middle of the table. Instead, is kissing your woman. And we don't say wrestling, we say wrestling. And get, be sure to do that. One of my favorite Southern expressions is, ain't got no sense. God gave a billy goat, which means someone doesn't have any common sense. If someone asks you how something is going, and it's not terrible, but also not amazing, we say that it's fair to middling. Have you ever heard she's madder than a wet hen? Have you ever seen a mad hen? Well, down here in the South, where we got plenty of chickens, we do. We know what it means. If you haven't, you need to, then you will understand. You don't say believe or think here. We say reckon, such as I reckon I will do it versus I believe I will do it, or I think I will do it. It's reckon I will do it. And the name for an object we can't remember, we use doohickey, or thingamajig, or whatchamacallit. And we're always hankering to do something or go somewhere. It means we have a longing or craving for something. And we might use might could to do something, or as cousin we used to could do something. If you hear me say, take your sweet time, or till the cows come home, know that these are not complimentary terms, but sarcastic terms. Instead, it shows that a Southerner is pissed off because it means that you are taking too long or moving along too slow. And the same goes for slower than molasses in the winter. And I hope you've poured molasses in winter because most of these old farmhouses in the South was cool and that old molasses didn't pour very fast. And you don't want to say hush up or hush your mouth for that means you are talking too much. If we are shocked, dismayed, or bewildered, we say, for goodness, grace, or Lord of mercy. And we say, full as a tick, pretty often. That means our belly is full of food, or as we say, gut widening. If we're going to be somewhere, we say, if the creek don't rise, I will be there. If I'm exhausted, we say, I am worn slap out. When we use, as all get out, that is used to intensify a statement or situation, as in, he is funny as all get out. If one is being a smart ass or bragging too much or thinking too highly of himself, we say politely, he's too big for his britches. You also hear us say, can't never could, which we use whenever we like, even though we don't know exactly what we mean. And please know the difference between supper and dinner. We don't use the word supper and dinner interchangeably. That's not the case in the South. Dinner refers to the midday meal, typically known elsewhere as lunch. And in the South, supper is the evening meal that y'all and others would call dinner. When we need to get off the phone after too much of a one-way conversation, we politely say, let me let you go. If you hear us say, I'll tell you what, that means we are pissed off and don't agree with what you're saying. One of my favorites is piddling. When we used to mean something small or trivial, like I got a piddling raise at work today, the word plum we use a lot to mean completely or totally like he is plum dumb or I am plum tired from work. 
you hear us say, how in the hog, that means that someone is doing well for themselves and enjoying plenty of comfort and luxuries. Colder than a well digger's ass or colder than a witch's titty in a brass brawl or hotter than a fox in a forest fire or busy as a one-legged man at an ass-kicking contest. You will hear us Southerners say that phrases a lot. And if you ask us, and let me say that, it's Uskins. And if you ask Uskins for directions, there are some things, and not things, if things is T-H-A-N-G, you will need to know. You will need to know what we mean when we say perk near, right close, over yonder, down yonder, and a right far piece. As for time, you will need to know how long directly is, as in I'm fixing to go to town, be back directly. And as you know, I just used that term fixing. We leave off the G on a lot of the words that end in I and G. And we never just do anything. We're, we're always fixing to do something. And we're always wondering, as in I was wondering if you would help me with my Bible lesson. Furthermore, we say, what in the Sam Hill instead of what in the hell? Like, what in the Sam Hill are you doing? And if things are going or moving along too fast, we say, hold your horses. Till the cows come home is another way to say forever in the South, as you can keep arguing till the cows come home, but I won't change my mind. It means that something is probably going to take a long time. It doesn't mount to a hill of beans means that something isn't worth much. A mild exclamation of surprise used in the South is heavens to Betsy. What about you don't know shit from Shinola? Or you can put that where the sun don't shine. And he ain't got a pot to piss in. I'm going to tell you, we flat use all three of those down here. He ain't right. Yeah, you hear that one too. Means a person is afflicted. And afflicted is another word you hear a lot down here. Uh, that's That means someone's head is not quite right or someone is goofy. Well, ain't that nice is usually used to mean just the opposite. Out of your pee-picking mind, let's go juking. That goes for dancing. Darn tootin' means we will do something for sure or with certainty. If we are putting on our jeans, underwear, pants, that means we are putting on our drawers. Putting, and notice I left off the G, putting on the dog means taking things to a high level or going, once again I left off the G, going all out. That dog won't hunt means an idea or plan that isn't going to work. Are you out of your pee-picking mind? If we say that someone is just playing possum, it means that we think the person is thinking it. And how do we get that term? When a possum feels as though it is in danger, it typically pretends to be dead in order to trick their predators. And if you have never seen a possum play dead, being an old country boy, although I'm a city dude, I've seen several possums play dead. To describe something that is incredibly unusual, we say that it's as scarce as hen's teeth. Clyde Egerton once said, because I was born in the South, I'm a Southerner. If I had been born in the North, the West, or the Central Plains, I would be just a human being. Marshall Frady said, the Southerners always tended to believe with his blood rather than his intellect. In fact, one of the most singular characteristics of a Southern native was, and is, their readiness to take offense at any reflection on their veracity or personal honor. He who ventured to cast a doubt on either was liable to be called upon in an instance to redraw it. If not, there was sure to be a scene or in the old days a duel. The glory of being a native Southerner consisted in being brave, truth-telling, and reverent towards women. 
and Southern women saw no contradiction in mixing strength with gentleness. Brother Dave Gardner said, The South may not always be right, but by God, it's never wrong. I love everything about the South. I even hate, love hate. Southerners have a genius for psychological alchemistry. With any, something intolerably simple cannot be changed, driven away, or shot, they will not only tolerate it, but take great pride in it as well. That was said by Florence King. General Sherman remarked, The young blood of the South, sons of planters, lawyers about town, good billiard players and sportsmen, had men who never did any work and never will. War suits them. They are splendid riders, first-rate shots, and utterly reckless. These men must all be killed or employed by us before we can hope for peace. In the South, the war between the states is what A.D. is. Elsewhere, they date from it, said Mark Twain. The South is a region that history has happened to, said Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. And William Faulkner remarked, The past is not dead. It isn't even past. Fascination with the South is a nostalgia for a place that isn't as busy or as caught up in the latest gimmick or fad, nor caught up with stress of business affairs in the concrete and asphalt jungles of city life. The feeling of belonging doesn't exist anywhere bigger and better than in the South. In no other place in this country are family, heritage, religion, food, race, and hunting more inclined. These are what has shaped our region, along with being the only region to have been defeated in the war, and therefore to feel somehow inferior to other parts of the country. But the nostalgia never is about what really was. It's an idealized something. The movies, magazines, and other media have depicted the idealized South. What they have sold us and are selling us is the perception of graciousness so exemplified by Southern Living Magazine that the South has a particular approach to decor, to food, to the way we interact with people, to the way our women get all gussied up. In a sense, although true, it puts the best South forward, a place that's polite, moral, benevolent, respectful, gracious, and well-bred. It is only in the South that graciousness is personified, that the South has a particular approach to decor, to food, to the way we interact with people, to the way our women get all gussied up, as I just mentioned, a place that's polite and benevolent, respectful, where we say yes sir or no ma'am, and the use of them is not optional. However, through all these tangled thickets of Southern chivalry, there was one figure that the South was most known for, and who stood for everything that was pure, spiritually, culturally, racially, and sexually. That was the graceful Southern Belle, and she was a great comfort to the Southern gentleman. Southern bells were polite, respectful, smart, but they mustn't seem to be. That was Scarlett O'Hara's big mistake. They were tough on the inside, but soft on the outside, and spoke in a low voice and kept their legs demurely crossed and dressed in clothes that were tastefully seductive and could charm the skin off a rattlesnake. And then Southern Belle always stayed gussied up and had a warm enchanting and inviting air about them. When they went out, they were dressed up to date on the latest fashions, and their face was painted, never going out without makeup, and they were adorned with jewelry. It always was about looking pretty and maintaining a social standard. Southern women's loyalty, whether rich or poor, laid with God, their husband, and their families. But it was also tactfully expected that they were to keep up with the latest fashions of the time, 
to the best of their ability. The presence of Southern women and the graceful air that supposedly surrounded them was felt in the entire South and became one of its defining characteristics. By and large, Southern Belles are Daddy's girls. Being Daddy girls from an early age, she felt very much like the reigning queen of the known universe, and she radiated it. She can't help it. But there is another side to the South which has been neglected. Because of the media, one would think that everyone who lived in the South was a blue-blood plantation owner with a multitude of slaves, that we lollygagged away our afternoons on the veranda of our plantation home, sipping sweet tea or drinking mint juleps or sipping southern whiskey while the slaves were out picking cotton, that the leisure to practice a gracious lifestyle was every southerner's birthright. But that is not the South that my family knew or the vast majority of the family in the South knew. What they knew was poverty, disease, and a hardscrabble lifestyle. My daddy and his family were hog and cattle traders. He and mama lived in the country 70 miles east of Memphis on a dirt road between Raymer and Shawala, Tennessee, famous Chickasaw Indian hunting ground. Their shotgun house stood at the dead end road next to Mose Baxter, a black man. No other houses was on that old road. Crops of corn were farmed, which was used to feed the hogs and cattle that he traded for. The hogs that they killed for their own personal consumption ran loose, so they also feasted upon acorns. They were at the top of the prime meat list. When a half-feral hog was killed, it was shared with Moses' family, and vice versa. Hog killing required considerable planning and preparation. The farmer's almanac was consulted to pick a cold day. Since Daddy depended on the smokehouse for nourishment, the whole year meat spoilage was a major catastrophe which literally threatened the survival of our family. Hogs were a low-maintenance animal and convenient food source for Southerners. In the pre-Civil War period, Southerners ate, on average, five pounds of pork for every one pound of beef. Hogs ran loose to root in the forest and caught when food supplies became low. These semi-wild hogs were tougher and stringer than modern hogs, but were convenient and a popular food force. Every pot of the hog was utilized, nothing was wasted. From the hoofs to the snout and everything under the skin was consumed, including chitlins. And yes, we eat chitlins. In the South, we sing Hush Little Baby to our children and teach them the joys of eating black-eyed peas with hog jaws on New Year's Day. Hog slaughtering became a time for celebration, and the neighbors would be invited to share in the bounty. A traditional southern barbecue grew out of these gatherings. At the end of the colonial period, the practice of holding neighborhood barbecues was well established. Plantation owners regularly held large and festive barbecues, with the barbecuing being done by the black slaves. Even the poor whites had their barbecue parties and did their own cooking. Barbecue was one of the sole foods which bound together the taste of both the people of the plantation house and the poorest occupants of the countryside, black and white. The South is known for its soul food and barbecue. Regardless, bar regarding barbecue, Memphis proclaims to be the barbecue pig capital of the world. And let's get that point straight. It is the barbecue capital of the world. If you come to Memphis, don't ask for barbecue beef. You will be looked upon as some kind of freak, and you will probably be asked to participate in a duel for insulting our Southern heritage and our pride. Memphis also boasts that it is the cotton capital of the world, home of rock and roll, birthplace of the blues, and hardwood capital of the world. But we don't have time to go into all of that. 
Now that you understand, I hope, the significance of pork to a Mid-Southerner, let me now tell you about something else which played and plays an important role in the life of the Southerner, and that is hunting. We can take great pleasure in knowing that nowhere on earth did hunting play more of a vital role than in the Mid-South and the South in general. After all, our forefathers were taught by the Chickasaws, Choctaws, Creeks, Cherokees, and others. Hunting is a tradition that has been handed down from the Indians to the settlers to us. Like barbecue, hunting was one ingredient that crossed racial barriers, especially between the blacks and the poor, rich Southern whites. So being Southern is a state of mind that is imparted at birth. It's more than loving fried chicken or barbecue, high school and college football, or gospel and country music. It's being hospitable, being devoted to front porches and sweet tea and each other. You don't become Southern, you were born that way. And you must say ain't, and not use is not or isn't. And by all means, you must use y'all on a regular basis in speech and in writing, while also using you-ins or we-ins. And when someone says, why bless your heart, know that that is not a compliment in the South, by all means. And the phrase has little to do with religion, it means you are an idiot. In the same vein, be aware that if you hear someone say, well, aren't you precious? It's probably being said sarcastically. If we have to go to the restroom, we say, I'm going to see a man about a horse or a dog, one or the other. If I say fit to be tied, that means I am angry or upset, or the opposite, if I say happier than a pig in slop, which means I am overjoyed. If we use the word tarnation, like what in the tarnation are you doing, that means what in the hell are you doing? And if you have too much white lightning, we say he is drunker than Cooter Brown. Who was Cooter Brown? He was an infamous character in Southern lore. Legend tells us that he lived on the Mason-Dixon line, which is the border between the North and South. He lived there during the Civil War. To avoid the draft on either side, Cooter decided to stay drunk throughout the entire war, making him ineligible for battle. Inebriated Southerners have measured their drunkenness by him ever since. In closing, if you are out dining and order tea, know that you will get sweet tea, and that if this snows at all, school and businesses will be closed and everything we eat is fried. And I don't need to say anything about grits and that biscuits come with gravy, and that our biscuits are buttermilk biscuits, and that bread to us is cornbread. And yes, we eat collard greens, mustard greens, and turnip greens, and we even love our wild-grown greens called poke salad, and we don't say crawfish. They are crawdads or crawdaddies. And please know that Coke to us refers to all soft drinks, so don't, please don't come down here and order a soda or pop for that is considered an insult. And also, please note that we love fried food, which I just mentioned, especially fried chicken and fried catfish, and that we always cook in an iron skillet. And know which I just mentioned, the catfish, it is our national fish in the South. So don't turn up your nose when we serve you fried catfish cooked in an iron skillet. And please don't say you are eating banana pudding. It's banana pudding. An icebox pie to us is any des dessert prepared in a pie crust that has to be kept refrigerated. Moving on from food, Ewans might notice that it's common to see young ladies wear dresses to a college football game down here. So get used to it and don't call us weird.
Below the Mason-Dixon line, we also stress the first half of words like hotel, guitar, and police. And we don't use the G, which I mentioned at the end of words. So getting is getting, and fixing is fixing. And any word that ends in O-W is replaced with A-R, like instead of window, it is windar. Oh, please. And pillow, no, pillar. Furthermore, we Southern boys are not all named Bubba, Junior, or Earl, nor are our Southern girls named Sissy or Missy. And yes, we sometimes marry our cousin. So that's it, and y'all have a good time till I see you ones again next Tuesday for episode 11. And be bless your heart, for we Southerners haven't forgotten, and go to church. As I said in most of my closing, I, I think that there's a lot of listeners out there that want to know about the old-time duck hunting and learn about the, what the old-timers had to say about it. And that's what this podcast is all about. You won't hear an interview done on the podcast. It'll be strictly me doing old stories. And every once in a while, like this episode, throwing in a, a contemporary thing, usually about my family or something else. Episode 11 will be uh, probably on side hunts. Uh, and that was a unique thing that was going on as far as hunting in the old days. I may change it and have a different topic. But anyway, whatever it is, the next episode 11 will be on the old times from the old timers. So don't miss an episode of historic waterfowling stories as the old timers give us their treasures and hidden riches of their history. And by all means, every Tuesday, as I've mentioned, listen to my podcast. And furthermore, visit my website, waterfowling.net. And while there, visit my blog. You'll see some bunch of old stories. And each of my podcasts will be on there in transcribed words so you can read it uh, if you want to go there to do that. And But I have other stories on old time as, as well. So go to there. And you also see two books I'm selling, Waterfowling Vignette and uh, Historic Waterfowling Images. They're both my in-print books. My out-of-print books are on there also. But I basically don't have any of them. But you can contact me and I t- can try to locate one for you. Closing, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in, and I hope you return next Tuesday. And please rate and view my podcast. At the end of most of my podcasts, I usually end with a reflection, and it is usually written by me. Occasionally, it's written from an old-timer. This reflection is written by me. Here it goes. My mirror of memory is a mind glass which shows again in bygone years of events enacted in yesteryears. It is not a glass backed with mercury and set in a carved or gilded frame, mind you, one which reflects naught but what appears before it. My mirror of memory is unique, for though each and every mortal is possessed of one, my reflections are for me alone, and it never flatters me. Subtle it is, too, so subtle that I can hear again, as I glaze into its depths the call of waterfowl, as I heard them in the olden and golden days, when the reflections were realities, and I can hear the calling of the red gods telling me to go out, to go out and spend a day with Mother Nature, away from asphalt and concrete jungle life of the city. So I close with, may God bless.